This is The Instigators, presented by Seneca Resorts and Casinos. Nothing else comes close. We are going to By definition, Marty, I think it is scouts who put in the most overtime throughout the course of a hockey season. Would you agree? That's not even debatable when you think about it. Uh, from a, Consider this. Scouts can watch 200 to 250 hockey games a year in person, now on top of video. Uh, so do the math. Uh, that's a lot of hockey and, yes, a lot of overtime. Do you think you could ever be a scout? <laughs> my attention deficit uh, or my, my span uh, would make me run out of the building halfway in the second period and go catch another game down the road. So um, yeah, I think I could be a scout or I could uh, evaluate talent and uh, watch a lot of hockey. That's what I do in the first place anyway. Do you remember what it was like as a kid when you had your first interaction with a scout on your way up the ladder? Yes. And I do remember my first year in the Quebec major junior hockey league and uh, I remember playing a game in Laval against the Laval Titans. And after the game, my coach came in and says, hey, uh, Marty, there's a, a scout wants to talk to you. And I'm like, a scout for what? what? What's a scout, right? And it was a guy from the Washington Capitals that was at the game that wanted to just have that first interaction, that first uh, conversation. And uh, yeah, and I actually went out to Washington later at the end of the season for testing and meetings and whatnot. But um, yeah, I remember the very first time I was told, an NHL scout wants to speak with you and you're feeling pretty good about yourself. Uh, not only did you just have a good game because they wouldn't come and talk to you if you didn't. Right. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty good feeling. All right. So I think you can get the uh, sense of what direction we're going with the podcast this week. Obviously we will be looking down the road at this 2022 NHL draft, but right now it's more about who's been drafted who's in the lineup, all on the heels of an Owen Power debut, of course, and who better to talk to from a Sabres standpoint than their director of amateur scouting, Jerry Fortin. Jerry's had a lot of different roles with this team over the last decade, but he's also had a lot of positions in the game that have set himself up really well for the position he's in right now. So yeah. looking forward to that discussion. And when you're serious about the game, bet on Buffalo at the only sports books in Western New York, Seneca resorts and casinos, betting counters. They're open daily and self-service betting kiosks are available 24 seven at all three locations. Whether you visit Seneca, Niagara, Allegheny or Buffalo Creek, the sports lounge features the latest lines and multiple screens. So you never miss a play the sports book at Seneca resorts and casinos where the love of the game meets the thrill of the win Sabres director of amateur scouting, Jerry Fort. Jerry, we hear so much about scouting, especially as it builds towards a draft. Sometimes the uh, scouts don't get all the attention on the night. A top prospect makes his debut in the NHL. What was Owen powers opening night? Like for you? Uh, I mean, obviously, I'm on the road, so I watched it on uh, TV. I, I was at the Frozen Four, so I did get the last viewing he had of um, in a college game. Uh, I, I have to say it's pretty much what you would expect, um, and, and I'm not the only one that sees it or said it last year or this year, uh, but the strength of his personality and his game is, you know, he manages the game so well. He plays a team game. He plays to win. Uh, it's part of his fiber. So um, to be able to fit in, sure, there were mistakes. It's, it's a tough position to play in the NHL. And I, I saw he had almost 10 minutes, you know, against the top line, too. So he certainly wasn't sheltered by, you know, any stretch of the imagination. Um, so I thought he held up, you know, very well and still was able to do some of the things he wanted to do offensively, too. As, as he said himself, he'll just keep getting better and better in that regard. Now, it's kind of funny because on the night that Owen Powers, uh, Owen Power made his NHL debut, Maddie Berniers also made his NHL debut in Seattle. Now, going back a year ago and scouting, um, how close were they uh, in your list, in the Sabres list, when you guys knew you had the first overall pick? Was it a, a close race, or did you guys, and not diminishing what Beniers is going to do, but did you guys have power, like, way up top, and you guys were locked in on him? 
Well, let me start by saying I love Maddie Berniers. Um, I, I was on the staff for the World Junior Team that won gold medal with Maddie. Um, and it wasn't just Maddie. There's a there's a group of you know three or four other players uh, right behind Owen that are going to have great careers. And I would not want to disrespect any of those players. And it'll take a long time to play out. Uh, but it you know we spend a lot of hard dialogue as an entire organization with a group of five or six players. I, I'm still very confident. You know we got the best player out of the draft. Um, but yeah, it wasn't a, it wasn't a runaway by any you know stretch. Um, there, there were there's a couple D that have had very good years this year out of that draft too. So I just think you know the the thing is I just said before and I'll go back to it, that separated Owen to us um, is you know the, the fact that he was so mature in his game approach and we all just felt like his game was going to translate really well to the NHL level. I mean, you saw it in the World Championships last year. The better players he plays with, the better he's going to be. Jerry, obviously, it is everything you just talked about that makes a team and a hockey department want to select a player and project them, you know, in down the road for their team. But there are obviously all the other intangibles that make up a human that you meticulously go through in the scouting process and the interview process and things like that. How do you like, what do your instincts tell you when you run into kids like this, when they're some might be really quiet and, and measured in what they say, some might just be all talk. Like they really want to engage in the conversation and can't stop talking. What have you found over the years, as far as, you know, trying to decide just what makes this person tick and, and little things that they do away from the game, how they conduct themselves, how that can ultimately translate into the player that you want. Well, I could, I can't imagine what the pressure would be like being taken in those spots, you know, first, second, third, overall. Um, so first of all, with those picks, um, you know, I think there's a lot uh, of discussion that needs to be had on how will the player and the person handle that type of pressure. Um, and the first thing I, I would look for in that regard are really two things, I guess. And, and Owen has it in spades in terms of um, the calmness or poise that he has as a, a person hockey player. Um, and he's very level-headed. Um, so I, I, I think, and, you know, Marty could certainly speak to this, not just as a goalie, but as, you know, a high-level professional athlete. If you start going, you know, with the ebbs and flows all the time, that's a recipe for disaster. Um, so to have that poise and le to be level-headed like that is, you know, a very good sign for me, especially at the top of the draft. And then, you know, just a hunger to continue to get better and um, learn and suck in any information you can and not to ever think, um, you know, that you've arrived. And, um, you know, I think, you know, with all our picks last year, that was a, a key element and in any draft that you want to make sure, because it's such a long road for these, you know, you're drafting players at 17 and 18 years old. Yeah. If, if they don't have an awareness of who they are, what their game is and, and how far they have to go, then the de development path is not going to be, you know, very good. Jerry, you are the director of amateur scouting with the Buffalo Sabres. So let me ask you this. Have you turned a page of on your draft picks of the last few years and only looking at the future? Or if you see a game during the season where Owen Powers maybe struggle or uh, Jack Quinn has, has had has maybe a struggle in a couple of games. Do you talk to the player development side and say, hey, um, I remember he, he had this happen to him a couple of years ago because you know them really well. So do you clearly turn the page or you're still in constant communication with the player development as well? Uh, I would say our job is about 98% to turn the page. Um, okay. But just to touch on the things you brought up, I mean, Adam Mayer, Jason Carmanos, their entire staff, you know, and, and we have a, a, a very competent and actually large staff now by player development standards in the NHL. So they, they are um, they don't leave too many stones unturned. 
with these players. They're certainly always reading our reports from their draft year and maybe even, you know, their underage year. And yes, when we're at games, um, we will always report on the player. We'll, we'll be texting or emailing back and forth to the development staff. Um, and our opinion on, on that game uh, rating and how we performed in that game, but also if there's anything really unusual that catches our eye based on our history with the player. I, I have to say almost every time the development staff is already all over it and one step ahead of us in that regard. But, you know, Rochester, you know, junior hockey, college hockey, every once in a while at the NHL level, maybe we can have one little tidbit that, you know, we could talk to the development staff or Kevin about, you know, and I was with Kevin last week and there was one player I mentioned like, geez, I always thought he was wired this way in his draft year and a couple of years after the draft. He's got to get back to that because that's really in his nature. So those type of conversations, yes. Um, but they're, as I said, they're usually way out of us in that regard. Can you give us a moment in the process that led up to drafting Owen Power that you just walked away from it, whether it was a viewing or a sit-down conversation with him or something where you were just like, wow, this kid is something. Well, <laughs> it was the entire year, first of all, and the progress he was making, you know, during the course of his season. Um, but yes, the, the, what, the, the big moment for me, to be honest, that put it right over the top was when he took the initiative to say he wanted to go back or would prefer to play another year of college hockey. Um, I mean, you know, Kevin and myself and Jason Carmanos, we, we saw the quotes and saw some of the interviews and he expressed that very clearly in his interviews and conversations with us as well. And it, it wasn't, you know, pushy or defiant in any sense. It was just, you know, I'm 99% sure that will be the best thing for my development and I'm not in a hurry. Um, so that, that goes back to what we talked about earlier, the, the fact that these kids have an awareness of what their game is and what they need to work on and what is the best development path for them. I, I do think that's highly unusual at the top of the draft. Even if a kid might be thinking that, I haven't heard them express it too often. Almost always they go out of their way to tell you they want to make the NHL team that year after the draft. And, and yeah. here's a kid that was close to consensus number one, and he's doing the complete opposite. Yeah, I was a, I was a 16th overall pick in 95, and I thought, well, I'm going to walk into the NHL right next year. Well, I, I didn't have the decision. They cut me in camp, so that wasn't so much my decision. Well, uh, in fairness to you, Marty, that, I mean, it's not even close. The, the D position yeah. is tough, but the goaltending position is by far the toughest. Well, I'm just it's speaking to the, you know, most players getting drafted first overall. Like, I'm playing NHL. Woo, that's the way it is. Even a mid-first-round pick, I was like, I'm playing NHL, and then I was disappointed when I didn't, which is how you're wired, right? But let me ask you a question, Jerry, because, uh, you know, you watch movies, and, you know, they do – they talk about scouting sometimes like it's uh, football or college football or NFL and NFL films or whatnot. And they, they interview the players, but they also interview the families in, in a sense. So I look at Owen power and I'm thinking, you know, last night at the game, he had so many people there, family members, uh, mom and dad, Trish and Z were there. Grandma Yvonne was there. She's the superstar in the whole thing. So how did you guys go about? Did you interview the family as well, along with Owen? Is it just the player? Uh, how do you guys factor in the family aspect of it all? Well, we were fortunate as an organization um, to have a tremendous amount of inside contacts, uh, both in Chicago, where he played in the USHL, um, myself and many others in our organization are, are very close with the Michigan staff and the entire Michigan staff, you know, um, trainers, equipment managers, all the coaches. And then, you know, we have a lot of people in our organization, a couple of scouts, even Donnie Granado, um, that had a lot of relationships and interactions with 
um, a Z in the family in the past too. So we were lucky in the sense that we did not have to get um, that deep, but um, certainly with other prospects and, and certainly we had those conversations and updated those conversations, but they were very casual um, and, and quick because we were confident in he was, you know, as high of character as you could possibly want. But, you know, yes, in a typical case, and you know this, Marty, like you would talk to the, the kids billet if he was playing junior hockey. Uh, we always interview the, the, the really important people. A lot of times that you get the true story from are the equipment managers, the trainers, how are they treating the people behind the scenes? Um, so, and then, you know, teachers, um, counselors, anyone in that regard too is, is valuable information. So our area guys do a great job with that. And then our crossover scouts, myself included, will do some follow-up with them. And then we'll have a couple of interviews with the player. Uh, how would you say your, I mean, you've had some different roles with this team, but let's focus just on scouting. How, how would you say the scouting title that you have and the role of all scouts in your department has changed, evolved over the time that you've been in the game, as far as, you know, what's better about it now, what's more efficient about it now, you know, what's more enjoyable about it? Um, you know, obviously there's been turnover in, in the scouting department in different areas. Um, you know, since the time I've been here, a lot of turnover. And I, I think we had a little building back up to do the last couple of years. And I, I'm thrilled um, with our staff right now. Um, I always feel that if you have quality people, um, you have to uh, keep those people um, on staff. You got to find a way to keep them. You got to let them grow and try to promote them from within your staff. And then, you know, I would hope that, you know, whereas, um, and I know it's a buzzword, but I would hope that we're more collaborative than we've ever been. Um, you know, it's not one person making the decision. It's not two or three people making the decision. You know, we, as I said, that the area scouts are very important in identifying the players early with our analytics department. A big role in the analytics department is identification and making sure we had good coverage in all areas. Um, you know, once we have, uh, you know, by the mid-year time, once we have a pretty good idea of our list and it's always evolving, um, everyone gets involved. It's, it's so much more efficient now uh, with the video and the data we have for everyone to get knowledgeable about the player. Now, we're still happy boots on the ground. I mean, you know, all of us, I would think, have, have probably been to as many games in the last year and a half or close to as many games as you ever would go to. But, you know, you're also supplementing that, you know, probably with at least, you know, another four times the games you're seeing live with video viewings of players. Um, and so the cross, you know, there's no substitute for the live viewings and, and getting that feel for who's, who's making the impact in the game relative to other people on the ice. And, and that's lost sometimes when you're just watching shifts after shift of a player. But if, if you can supplement it by seeing, you know, 10 games on video of all the players shifts and then seeing five to 10 games live and then having all the data from every single one of the games he's played the last two years, you have a real good understanding of who the player is right now. And I, I think we're excellent at that. I think probably most organizations in the league have evolved and become, you know, very good at that. So you're not going to make the mistakes. You'll have the surprises anymore. Uh, and we have this conversation with our development staff. I don't think we got surprised at all by some of our draft picks, but are you going to be right on the projection? And, and that's where the big debate always comes down to. You know, what you're seeing now, is that going to project up the next level? And maybe what you're seeing now that might be deficient, does the kid have some other advantages that's not showing up in the data right now or, or to the eye that will project up, you know, better? at other levels, or there's something about the kid's makeup or skill set that you believe as a, a longtime scout that it will project out. So 
it all it almost always you know everyone's eye in the data in eight out of ten cases in our organization is almost always aligned but there's 20 percent of the cases where there's a big debate and and then it becomes a question of whose projection do you think is right and you got to get to that as a group at the end i'm sure there's a lot of conversations now i remember I mean, 20 years ago, even probably 10, 15 years ago, you would see all the scouts in the building, like in the junior rank or in a college rank, and they'd be in the same corner and they'd open their books, right? And they'd write all their notes. Like I, I, I write notes, like I'm a paper and like I've got pads everywhere and that's, that's how I do things. But we're in a digital world now. Um, is, is it all done through computer? Do you still use paper and notes where you sit down, you write it down, and then you have to put it on your computer? Like, how does it all work? I would say, you know, 90% of scouts still, you know, want those notes. And they're valuable to me, Marty, because a lot of times if you try to do it digitally, um, there's some notes or, that you may have on players that are on their periphery that at the time you didn't think were prospects or weren't priority players for you in the game. And if you were just relying on what you inputted digitally, you probably wouldn't have that memory of the player a year or two down the road. So I'm constantly going back to my books and seeing, hey, I did see that player. What did I think about him a couple of years ago, even if I didn't write a report on him? Uh, but our software systems, And, and most of the teams in the league share the, you know, the similar systems are getting, you know, very sophisticated. Um, you know, RinkNet for one, you know, just came out with a new program. You know, all of them, you know, you can access with voice activation now. Um, you can be, if you want to, at the game, you can be dictating, you know, your notes on a player right in to his box on the line chart on your phone or iPad. Um, wow. So, yeah, so there are, you know, and, and on occasion, you know, I'll do that, but there are some scouts that prefer that. And I think they feel like it's, you know, more efficient for them. I will say the, the probably the, the time consuming part of the job that the average person wouldn't realize is how for every game you go to, you could spend two, three, four hours reporting on that game. Mm -hmm. So you have to assemble your notes. You're, you're constantly looking back at your old reports on the players. You know, you're looking at, you know, raw stats, you're, you're, the history of the player. Um, I try to encourage our scouts not to look too deeply into the analytics um, because we let them have access to as, as much as we can. But I want there to be independence. And if you don't have independence and opinions and someone's um, being maybe persuaded by some of the data they're looking at before they do the report, then you lose that, lose that independence. But it's easy enough to tell if that's happening. And I have not seen that be a problem at all the last two years, because I think we have you know, pretty mature scouts and we have healthy debate and healthy dialogue. And The analytics department's not afraid to disagree with the scouts and the scouts aren't afraid to disagree with the analytics department. Okay. You, it's, use it's the, lot, yeah. you use the well, word mature, but is there an element in all this wonderful software that acts as a chat function where you can at least take a jab at a guy for a report that he just put in on a player that the other guy might not like? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, and, good. <laughs> and, and, you know, we need to get in front of each other a lot more in meetings, um, you know, coming out of COVID here. We've done it a few times, uh, but it, it hasn't happened enough. And as much as Zooms are very efficient and have, have changed the world and are here to stay, there's still no substitute for me to getting, you know, 15 people in a room. <clears throat> and, I, you know, I, the olden days of pounding the table and screaming at each other are probably gone because there's so much information out there that we're utilizing now. So I think people are more open to the fact that if they saw five games, yeah, they, they have a strong opinion, but they might not know the entire picture. So they're open to the dialogue, but we still want them to have strong opinions on what they saw. And I think when you're in person and you have relationships with each other, Um, you know, that's when you really get to the bottom of things scouting wise. 
When you say 15, um, and I would assume you are including obviously Kevin Adams and Jason Carmanos and, you know, some of the pro scouts, but how, how big does the room get even prior COVID? Like you guys are getting ready for a draft and the pro scouts are, you know, talking about certain players that maybe you want to trade for and the picks. And so how big does the room get at its fullest? Uh, yeah, I'm probably light when I say 15. If we're strictly having an amateur meeting, it would be about 15. That's our amateur staff. Um, Jason Carmanos, Kevin Adams, and, um, you know, uh, our one Sam probably from our analytics department. Yeah. If, if the meetings where we're having a lot of crossover dialogue and we do include, you know, the rest of our, our analytics staff and our development staff and pro scouts a few times a year with all our amateur meetings. Um, and then obviously, you know, the draft, um, you know, the free agency in the summer, the really big meetings, you know, development camp, you know, rookie camp, then you're, you're at about 25 people and it's, it's a big room. And another reason you want to be in person, because as you know, you try to do those meetings on zoom and they're tough to manage and you don't have, you know, the facial expressions or you can't read, you can't feed off each other and read off each other quite as well on zoom as you can when you put 25 people in a conference room. Yeah, I'm imagining too many people are muted when they shouldn't be, and too many people have left their mics open when they shouldn't have. So um, <laughs> now, assuming statute of limitations has passed and you've been in the game a long time, most memorable draft meeting argument. Who was the player who was staunchly on one side, staunchly on another? Take us, take us into something like that. Oh, boy. Um, and... <laughs> I, you know, a, a lot of those times, um, the conversation could revolve around what Marty just alluded to. And, you know, maybe it's a conversation where you're giving up a first round pick, you know, for a big trade. And you do have everyone in the room. You know, you have the pro scouts there. You might even have your head coach there. Um, you have your entire amateur staff, all the management, and um, I'd like to think everyone's on the same team, but certainly everyone has um, some built-in conflicts of interest, um, and, and that's no different from even the structure of a, you know a, a GM and a head coach at the NHL level. I mean, there's so much short-term pressure, but then there are people that whose job is more um, to feed the machine, you know, with prospects and, and the future. Um, so I, I will say, you know, when it came time to trade some picks and you can figure out some of the players involved, but when it came time to, you know, trade the 20th pick or the 30th pick and, and you thought you had some players that you really liked in that range, but you also had people that felt very strongly that you could make your team better right now. Uh, and then sometimes it might be taking on a player with a big contract. Um, so you certainly would have ownership involved in those discussions too. You, you can have high, high anxiety with a lot of, you know, rightfully so alpha personalities in the room. Uh, so I would say those become the most stressful times. And, you know, same thing with the draft, you know, by the end of it, if you work with each other, you know, long enough or you have an open enough relationship with each other, when you get to the end, you get to a good spot on that. I'm not going to say it happens every time, uh, but you hope you get there. And then, you know, the biggest thing, and this is the same with the draft, you know, once the decision's made, it's our decision and it's our pick. It was no one person's pick. It was no... It wasn't your GM, it wasn't your director of pro scouting, it wasn't your director of amateur scouting's decision. It was everyone's decision and you're all on the hook for it, good or bad, from that point going forward. You had your chance to say your piece. Um, and again, it, the benefit to having everyone in the room. If you don't speak up at, in those moments, you know, and even if you do, you're still part of the process, but people don't forget you know, what was said. But it, it becomes an organization move, and, you know, you got to have faith in that. 
Okay, I'll put you on the spot a little bit here with a this or that or the other thing. Like, I mean, I do this either or this or that on our uh, radio show. So, um, so when Kevin makes the Jack Eichel trade, okay, and you've got three pieces coming, right? You've got Alex Stuck, Peyton Krebs, or the first round pick. What piece are you more excited about? Like the fact that because you've seen all of the you, you, you've scouted talk, you've you've scouted Krebs. So you you look at it and you say, wow, we're getting Alex Stuck, like an established NHL player for the organization. Krebs, a prospect that you've seen and you're like, wow, this guy's going to be good or the upcoming first round pick. So for you, what is more exciting, the Tuck piece, the Krebs piece or the first round pick piece? Um, this, this might, um, surprise you, but, um, my background and, you know, uh, over the years being involved with young players and in, at the NHL level, you know, drafting 17, 18 year olds, um, and getting excited about, you know, first round picks, uh, it's not even close for me. I want the player that's three, four, five years into his development. Yeah. And in, in a, you know, a tuck situation where you have a, a value contract or in a, a, a crabs situation where you have a player, you know, under your control for a long period of time that wants to be here, but three years into his development, how you could, and you know, are both good players. Um, like it's nerve wracking taking a player, you know, 15th or 10th or even first overall. Um, and, and watching for three years and making sure that's play, that player is what you had you know, projected that player to be. So if you have an opportunity to take that, know you're getting two valuable NHL players and they're into their development, um, you know, three or five years, like it's a no brainer for me. Yeah, I get excited about draft capital because that's super valuable to the organization, whether you make the pick or not. So you got to keep that capital coming into your organization. Um, you know, where I wouldn't get excited, you know, being the director of amateur scouting is if we got a player that's 10 years into his career and, you know, is uh, there's some uncertainty with this contract status. Um, and now ask me that in a couple of years when I think, you know, we're ready to you really go for it. I'll, I might give you a different answer. But yeah, right like a now, rental at the deadline in a couple of years when you're making a push, you'll be like, oh, I'm excited about it. But right now may not be the right timing. <laughs> and, and Marty, I, I feel like a big part of our job in the amateur scouting department is um, being able to make some value picks. And, you know, in the second, third round, maybe they won't all play for us someday. But other organizations hopefully will want those players. Um, and, you know, we don't like to trade our players or our prospects, but if it has to be done at some point and you're able to, you know, use one of those um, assets, and I hate talking about our prospects that way, but that's the reality of the game. If you have to use them and other organizations want those players and are willing to pay, you know, slightly more value for them than where you drafted them, then you've done a, you know, a, a really good service to the organization. Speaking of prospects, um, any thought on Isaac Rosen and how your group feels he's progressing at this point? Yeah. And, you know, there's a, there's a perfect example of, you know, what I would consider a big, uh, you know, projection pick. Um, you know, we watched him a lot the year before um, at against his, his peer group. He is so dynamic um, he's a great athlete, a great skater, um, the shots elite, uh, but you know, uh, 150 ish pounds, you know? So, um, the, the various leagues in Sweden do a great job of player development, but, um, again, you have a lot of short-term pressure on coaches over there as well. So you go up to the SHL level. And if a guy's not ready to help you win right now, um, it's a tough situation for the player. And he jumped around so much and then he was hitting his stride and then the world juniors got canceled. Um, you know, in the ideal world, he probably should have played in the Al Svenskin 
um, all year, which is a second, you know, pro men's division over there. And the games he did play there, he was dominant. Un unfortunately, Lexan does not have a, a, a direct Al Svenskin organization under their umbrella. It's a loan situation. And we knew that. That's the setup in, you know, in Sweden in general. Uh, but, uh, you know, I was really encouraged with the player and our development staff would tell you the same. You know, he, he would ask if he played in the SHL men's league on a Friday, Saturday, limited minutes, he would ask to go down and play in the under 20 on Sunday, you know, like, so the, like, again, going back to what we talked about before, you know, players not thinking they've arrived, still being, you know, hungry, uh, willing to prove themselves, um, do whatever they need to do to get some edge in the development. So he had a lot thrown at him this year. And then, um, you know, unfortunately, you know, blocking the shot, got hurt when he was playing some of his best hockey. So, um, you know, it's, it's the ebbs and flows again, you know, with these players. He, he had some high-end, you know, moments and games where he showed us, you know, he's going to be everything we thought um, he, he's going to be and is still confident about. But he also had some challenges where you understand, you know, what I said about before, how nerve-wracking it is sometimes watching these kids. It's a lot like being a parent, you know, you, you're, you watch them go through these ups and downs and you, you have to be really careful on forming any strong opinions um, and trust what you saw and what you continue to see in terms of their future. Because it's it's going to be a roller coaster for them, and he he might have been the ultimate roller coaster player this year. But we we love the person, we love the player. I'm I'm really excited to get him over here and have our coaches and our development staff have their hands on him this summer. We missed that opportunity last summer, so um, go ahead. Would he would he be uh, likely to play in the rescheduled World Junior? He will play in the rescheduled World Junior. So okay. I mean you know there's a kid that potentially could have two world junior tournaments, you know, within four months of each other and be a huge part of, you know, both teams. I'm, I'm not quite sure how I feel about that. Uh, but in his case, coming off the injury, it, it's, it's probably, you know, very good. Uh, I, I do think it's, there's going to be some players going to NHL training camps that probably aren't going to play in that reschedule world juniors. Yeah, I would think some of them will want to focus on their summer training and be ready for their season at the NHL level or not. But one thing you just mentioned, and, and it, it, it's kind of a question I've always had, is how much has it changed over the last few years, your understanding of all the different leagues and their umbrella structure and their ownerships? Because you have USHL, North American Hockey League, all the Canadian major junior and junior a you've got college you've got european leagues like there's so many different aspects of the scouting that you have to take in considerations and without naming any names but is there a certain organization where you'd be like this uh, we, we never had good luck with this organization like it's we're gonna stay away from that one because we don't feel it 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 funnels the the, the priorities and the culture that we have here in buffalo that's that's definitely factors into the decision at times and it's extremes right marty you're just worried about the extreme situations um and and there are some places where you are concerned with a certain type of player is that going to be the best you know development spot for him uh you know in in some cases he might have played there in his draft year so you you've got you got an up close and personal look of it in his draft year I feel like in North America, you know, we're exceptional in, in knowing those spots, you know, that, that could be a little bit of an advantage or a little bit of a dis disadvantage. I wouldn't, I would never pull a kid off our draft board or move them up too much higher straight off of that. But it's certain all things being equal with another player in the similar area, that could be the tiebreaker. Um, we're also fortunate in, in Europe, I, I feel like, well, my experience inside and outside the NHL, I have pretty extensive, you know, connections and relationships in Finland and Sweden, but we also have Anders Forsberg, 
who's been in the NHL, you know, mm-hmm. off and on for a long, long time and was actually part, the head of the summit uh, 10 years ago in Sweden when they decided to, you know, take a close look at their development model and all their pro and junior leagues and how they wanted to restructure that. So he's got tremendous insight into that. And going back to one of your earlier questions, that is something he will share with our development staff and talk to our development staff about like, you guys might want to take a close look at this or, you know, make sure you're a step ahead of this because it's the kid's going to struggle if, if this continues with this type of um, development path in this organization or that organization. So, and then, you know, Frank Musel, and it was out at the Czech Republic, but is a long time NHL player and scout and lives outside of Prague and has extensive, you know, experiences in that region with our Russian scout. You know, then we're getting into areas that I consider kind of over my head. Um, and we have to defer to them on that, but they're constantly educating the scouting staff and our development staff on the intricacies of the various leagues. And, and it becomes really important, you know, when you're scouting the leagues live and on video too, um, because there could be a lot of intricacies of where you're watching the player play that could affect, you know, your opinion of the player and how he is performing at that level. Okay, you're on the road. You're not with anybody within your organization. Three people around the hockey world that you would like to sit down and have a glass of red wine with when you're on a scouting trip. Oh, wow. You really got me on that one. Three people around the hockey world. Um, well, I, I will tell you, um, I'm, I'm big fans right now, and, and you'll hear their name. Um, in the in the future, and I have had a few glasses of wine with them uh, over the years, and this year in Sweden, uh, the Abbott twin brothers, uh, Cam and Chris Abbott, who are from uh, Sarnia, Ontario, um, and if you ever look up some stuff um, on the internet on them, it's incredible stories. Um, I mean, they were kind of role players at Cornell, and you know, cut from all sorts of East Coast Hockey League teams uh, ended up going over to Europe and by the end of their career in Europe were almost cult heroes in the SHL. Undersized, high, high compete players became captains of every SHL team they played on at the end of their careers. And now one is a GM and one is a head coach in Robla in the SHL a low budget team in the SHL that lost in the finals last year and won the regular season this year. The, the cider kid obviously, you know, played for them. Who's with Detroit right now, a, a great development program. They do more with less. I'm headed back over there in a few days for a couple of weeks too. So, um, and they just won in game seven in the quarters yesterday. So, and we might bring one of them over for development camp just to have, you know, build the relationship a little bit more. Um, I, I, I will tell you, one of my favorite people, you know, just from a strict entertainment perspective, and I don't know if Marty ever played with them, but Teddy Donato is one of the all-time <laughs> characters in hockey. Um, and he was on the World Junior staff with me, and I worked at him at Harvard. So I've, I've had a couple stops with him. Uh, but there's no one, in, in, if Marty asked some, you know, mutual friends that played with him, he was always uh, the, the entertainment in the locker room. So Teddy, Teddy's a lot of fun. Um, you know, uh, Nate Lehman's a close friend of mine and, and Nate and I have, you know, been on some staffs together. And anytime I get a chance to cross paths with them on the road, we make sure we have dinner um, and, and talk hockey. And I, I really, I value his mind just both from um, a coaching perspective, but he's a tremendous, and sometimes you lose this as a coach. Uh, he's a tremendous evaluator of talent and projecting talent too, and sort of diamonds in the rough um, type of talent. So I, I, I enjoy spending time with him and he likes good red wine. So I like that about him too. <laughs> um, have you ever seen the clip of Teddy Donato as Edward Donato on The Price is Right? 
I have. I have. <laughs> yes. Mark, did you know guys that played with them? Oh yeah, I know tons of guys that have played with him. He was always the the, the fan favorite, the locker room favorite. He, uh, they all loved him. And, and he's he's um, what I would call, and I mean this as a compliment. He is a a simple, smart guy. So he, he you know he he's still got the the Boston in him, and uh, he he he's a regular guy, but he's smarter than he lets you you know. No, so I always appreciate that about him, and obviously a Harvard guy, but he's done well. He's quite the character, so oh, quite the character is uh, understating it. Uh, one of the best in in the whole uh, business, probably. Now you you talk about like scouting in Europe, whatnot. Like, is there challenges and and difference in what you can and cannot do, especially with the colleges because of the rules, the NCAA rules? So, is there a certain um, I mean, even going out to dinner, is, is there things that are not allowed with co uh, coaches and uh, and uh, athletic director in, in college that you can do with other programs around the world? Yeah, much, you know, it's much more. I, I shouldn't say much more. It's, there's more restrictions, mm -hmm. uh, more red tape. I, I wouldn't say at the end of the day, it's anything that really interrupts the process too much. I mean, just to give you a simple example, And I'm sure you even remember this, Marty, but, you know, in a non-COVID year, you know, your development coaches can go on the ice with your prospects yeah. at the junior hockey level. Uh, for me to be on the ice with the player, there's, there's really no substitute for that. You know, even from like a skating perspective, when you're on the ice and you're with him and other players, You can see some things up close and personal with the skating that, you know, really strike you. So, you know, those type of things, some of the restrictions, you know, as you said, with entertaining and dinners and so forth. But you still have full access to the player otherwise. And, you know, the most important thing for us and the development staff and the amateur scouts is, you know, getting to know the player a little bit you know, before we draft them and after we draft them. And, you know, from that perspective, there's not really, you know, any restrictions you know, from an NCAA level or in Europe. You know, it's it's just how many times can you get there in Europe, you know, the last year. And we've done a pretty good job as the amateur staff and development staff on, on working around the restrictions and the canceled schedules and the testing. I, I will tell you, like nerve wracking when you're in Europe after a long trip and then you got to take the COVID test before you come back and. The, the same guy that has my job for Dallas when we were leaving Switzerland tested positive on our last day there. So, you know, 10 days of scouting and then 14 days in the COVID hotel in Switzerland, you know, locked on the floor before he could come back. So I, I will tell you this, this most recent trip I have, I have two return refundable trips booked out of Munich at the end of my trip, one going into Toronto Because Toronto, Canada has lifted the testing requirements if you're fully vaccinated. And I have one coming back to Buffalo in case the U.S. lifts those testing requirements, you know, before I head back here. Because I don't really want to test and run around the last day I'm over there and worry about a false positive or anything like that. So. Last one for me goes back to uh, your discussion about taking notes. And I'm wondering if you ever left a hotel room and left a piece of paper and or notebook behind. <laughs> Now, I <laughs> and I love your reaction. shake. <laughs> Duffer, I, I will tell you, I've never done it. But the anxiety it's created in my life over the years. I mean, you're, there, I have like a checklist now. You know, I always go over before I leave hotel rooms and it's, you know, it's, it's my, my notebook, my computer, my phone, my wallet, you know, I constantly like I, I those four things in my head, because you have it out all the time when you're in the hotel, you're trying to utilize every minute you have in a hotel room. That's where I come back to the computers. You have the computer out and you're beating it up all the time and the, You're using it all the time and your notebooks out all the time and you're trying to get phone calls in and you're making those notes in your notebook too. You're, you're so paranoid about it. That and at the draft. I mean, the, the paranoia at the draft in a conventional year, 
you know, when you have the draft table and people have draft lists and your notebooks around. Yeah, it's, um, I'm scarred by that, but I haven't made the big mistake yet, knock on wood. I, I kind of say that because I know you're a big music guy and I always, I'm always fascinated by what exists in the rock and roll hall of fame in Cleveland, like all these things like napkin notes and, you know, liners, you know, lyrics written on napkins and things. And, and you're like, how did anybody ever get a hold of this? Right. Yeah. So I'm always, I'm always thinking of it in the scouting context. Like what has been found over the years? Like when they clean up the draft table after the, you know, the city hosts the event, like, the stuff get left behind that ends up in the hockey hall of fame 30 years from now. <laughs> well, that what would be really embarrassing is having people go back through your notes and, you know, see all the stupid things you said, but unfortunately, and my daughters torture me about this all the time. My, my handwriting's, you know, not very legible. So I don't know if too many people could decipher too much. It's a defense mechanism that most uh, scouts probably developed over the years so that uh, nobody can read over your shoulder. Uh, last for me, is there one player over your years of scouting that you drafted or didn't draft that you had on a list that you are looking at now and say, man, I knew he was going to be that good. Like it was like the, your, your, your pride and joy, even if you didn't draft him, that you knew he was going to be that good. Uh, you you guys will have to figure out a way to edit this one, I guess. But um, it's it easy for me, Charlie McAvoy. I mean, okay. I, I, I love Charlie as a person, a player. Um, we had a lot of passion for him. And it's a great lesson in managing the draft list. And, you know, I, I played a part in that draft. I wouldn't say it was an integral part, but I played a part for sure. And I was definitely running up kind of the college part of it. And, and the two lessons for that for me would be, first of all, don't have people that are compartmentalized in different leagues where you have someone that's almost all responsible for college scouting, but doesn't know the whole pool, especially at the top of the draft. Um, but, you know, to me, the Charlie was a star. And I think I don't want to put too much wait into the interview but i think if you ask people in our organization like you know one of the top interviews of all time and just an impressive person and everyone that he was around for three years leading up to the draft would say the same thing and i knew charlie from the time he was young but the the second lesson was these players sometimes get slotted you know both internally and externally in a certain um, area of the draft. And, you know, Charlie was sort of thought at, of as a 10 to 20, you know, pick. And in, in a there, D heavy class. In a D right? heavy class. And yeah. I think there were, you know, I, I don't want like revisionist history here, but I think there were enough of us that felt he was by far the best D in the draft. Why couldn't we talk about him, you know, in five to 10 range? You know, and I remember, you know, when you talk about those meetings with everyone in the room, I remember pleading myself and others uh, were doing the same. You know, why don't we try to trade out of the pick? And there were three teams in the draft that had multiple first round picks. Um, now, one of them was Boston. So, you know, if, if Boston would have trade made the trade with us, they might have been doing that to go pick Charlie anyways at, you know, number eight. I don't know. Um, but there were a couple other teams and, and just, I mean, you, you know, it's been spoken about in the media and certainly the, the fan base many times. And it's old enough now that I don't mind talking about it. And, and you know, it's those are the mistakes you make sometimes. And I'm not saying it was, you know, him versus one other player. It wasn't that. But, you know, if, if I had had a little more experience at the NHL level, um, you know, and a couple other people, you know, maybe we could have made more headway in that regard. And, you know, we need to do a better job. I needed to do a better job myself, too, of, of really knowing the player and pushing harder for him in the meetings when I talk about having everyone in the room. So if, if I would have done a better job, you know, maybe we get in there, you know. You can't change it. You know, quite honestly, if you spin the whole thing back, you know, we ended up with Yokoharu right now, who's, you know, 
a, a very good NHL player. And you got you got to move forward. But that that would be an easy one for me. Well, thank you for the honesty. Uh, yeah, that that's is awesome. It, it's it's so good, and and I, I'm sure this happens to you often. Your answer there just brought it right back to the start of our discussion today, in the sense of Owen Power sitting down, talking with him, hearing. Because see, now I'm thinking, okay, Owen Power probably was quite different than Charlie McAvoy when you're sitting down and getting that impression in a scouting interview. And I, and I can say this only from the media side, Jerry. Charlie McAvoy is easily top three interviews we've ever done when the kids come here for the combine. Like you walk away from that going, oh my, and that's without a viewing. Like I'm not putting hockey in it at all. Just an impressive person, right? So that's why it's always really fascinating to talk to you and guys in the hockey department about the interview process and all the little things that go into making an assessment of a player. Yeah, he really had to throw a dagger right in me, too, after the draft, because we interviewed him three times, and I walked down the corridor outside all the suites at the draft, and we crossed paths as he was going up, you know, to meet in, in, with all the management, and he, he was like, Jerry, I really thought you guys were drafting me. I really <laughs> thought, like, that was, in, and I just, I sick to my stomach, and obviously sick to my stomach many many times after well we honestly can't thank you enough um i feel bad marty should we be asking or should we just delay the discussion as far as this upcoming draft can we save it for another day yeah and it will be this summer because we've already you know yeah it's not the longest pod we've done but it's uh you know we start stretching them out a little bit more so we'll let you get back to your notes and everything that you have to do now uh, planning your trip to Sweden and hopefully returning to the U.S., but maybe you'll have to return to Toronto. But I'm, I'm sure we'll have this discussion with you again before the draft this summer. I'm, I'm in Sweden for a while, then I come back and meet our entire staff in Germany. Uh, we'll actually have 10 or 12 people over in Germany. So when I get back from, um, from those meetings and viewings, you, I'll jump on again with you guys. I'll have a really good feel at that point. Awesome. Um, and the whole picture. Awesome. Thank you so much for the time, Jerry. Great uh, discussion. Thanks, much appreciated. Keep up the good work. Now that was a very, very enjoyable session with Jerry Fortin. Very candid. And I'll tell you, it, it takes a lot for people in his position to kind of let loose and to say, Okay, here it is. Here's the one that I really regret. I always, I always remember I, Mike Penny. He was, you know, had been with the Vancouver Canucks and Pat Quinn, and then they were in Toronto. And I remember having Mike on the show one night as assistant GM. And, you know, he was like, the one that got away was um, Matthias Nordstrom, the Kings defenseman. They had taken yeah. Mike Fountain, the goaltender. Oh, the goalie, yeah. And, and then Nordstrom went, and it was like, I mean, oh my gosh, Nordstrom was just an absolute beast. <laughs> like just the defensive shots and oh yeah, it just what a, what physical a, what play. A, yeah, absolutely amazing. Although, so thanks Jerry for that. And uh, it's funny I, because I never mentioned to him and I didn't want to say it because I'm not a fan of Charlie McAvoy, but not the player. It's just probably because I feel like since his entry in Boston, he's always played with that chip in his shoulder. Like I'm at Boston Bruins, blah, blah, blah. Like, so being that I, the Bruins were a rival of mine, and even with the Sabres, the Flyers, the Rangers, the Islanders, or whatnot. Mm-hmm. So anybody Bruins, I'm not big fan of. So yeah. I didn't say that. I can appreciate Charlie McAvoy for the player that he is, but I didn't want to say yeah, I don't like him. <laughs> All right. Uh, based on the fact that Owen Power was, uh, you know, kind of the individual that let us down this path and thankfully so because jerry gave some terrific insight there i think let's you know transition from owen and jerry into our three stars but before we do i think you and i could both agree that the true number one star of the week would be grandmother yvonne oh i mean honestly the the pride and excitement for this 92 year old woman to be witnessing her grandson in toronto for his nhl debut 
that's what the game is all about. It's so it's so funny. Also, the fact that it was her first game NHL game at uh, Scotia Bank, and she got a certificate saying, "My name is Yvonne, and this is my first game," which is usually like the four or five year olds, right? So yep. awesome. She was the star when Owen got drafted by the Sabers, and they had the Zoom, and he was there with his family. She was right next to him. She was the star last night as well. But okay, oh. for go ahead. No, go for your three. I was going to say, for my three-star, because Owen Powers, the number one overall pick in 2021, and that crew has not really made their mark yet in the NHL. We see Maddie Berniers uh, playing his first NHL game. There's going to be more. I decided to go back a year because Quinn and Paterka were drafted in 2020. And look at the draft class of 2020. And I have my three stars, three players that I think are going to be really studs and I'm not including Quinn and Paterka because I think they're going to be the top two guys. But anyway, let's look at that. It's a class that had Lucas Raymond and Seth Jarvis and Quentin Byfield, Tim Stutzla, Alex Lafreniere was drafted first overall. But here are the three guys that I'm watching from the 2020 draft class. In third spot, third star is Dawson Mercer. I have loved Dawson Mercer since he came to Buffalo with the Devils for a development camp and that prospect challenge. And I'm telling you, he is going to be a gritty player with offense. I love him. Number two, Jamie Drysdale, defenseman of the Anaheim Ducks, played down the road in Erie, Pennsylvania with the Otters in the OHL. And they thought, well, maybe he'll come back as a 19-year-old. Eh, didn't happen with COVID. He went straight to Anaheim and will stay in Anaheim. I think he's a fantastic defenseman with some really good upside offensively. And my number one star of the 2020 draft comes from the Florida Panthers, plays center with Mason Marchment and uh, and Sam Reinhart is Anton Lundell. That guy, I am telling you, a point a game. A point a game is what I think he will be. Uh, he plays on a third line and just has been spectacular for Florida this year. So there are my three stars of the 2020 NHL draft. <sighs> You've rendered my discussion moot, I think. It's hard to it's hard to top the, the names and, and the points you just made on those guys. But because of Owen and because of defensemen and because of that cliche of it can take time, and, and here we are talking about this young group of Sabres defensemen, I'll highlight some guys who are well down but still on the defense scoring leaders list in the NHL and recognize the path that they've all taken to get where they are today which is different levels of experience, but still tremendous upside for all three. Briefly mentioned him on the show this week, Noah Hannafin from Calgary. When you yeah. think of going fifth overall in 2015, he's top 25 in D scoring right now. You almost never hear his name because of how well constructed the flames are and how prolific they are up front. But their group has transitioned into a few different players that are carrying the mail offensively on the back line. And I'm so happy for Noah Hannafin. Honestly, Marty, he was one of the more enjoyable players we've ever had a chance to talk to from the combine going in and not, not a wow factor, just a very much understanding yes. of the element that he was in where the draft type was, where he slotted in and all of this. And, and I'm, I'm really happy to see him finding his way now with Calgary. No, the Dobbs draft type, the draft type was Connor McDavid, Jack Eichel, right? I mean, that's what it was. So yeah. you, you have a tough act to follow when those two go one and two and you go five. And he, he was talked about being the third pick in that crew as mm -hmm. well. So that's, that's a tough goal. And then there's Noah Dobson. The Islanders oh. do things that then don't attract, uh, you know, a name on the marquee. It's as it should be in the eyes of many. It's all about the team. But you can't win without making smart draft picks along the way. And, and Dobson went 12th in 2018. And I think the fact that he's already sitting there, you know, tied with a guy like Alex Petrangelo, you know, basically 20th in defense scoring. Yeah. He's very limited on the experience scale. It's only his third year and not his third full year. I think they have hit an absolute home run here with Dobson and look out because he's in the conference. You're going to be facing off against that type of defenseman for years to come. And then also from the class of 2015 and because Calgary is such a good story, 53rd overall was Rasmus Anderson. And, oh. you know, you, you talk about a guy who's basically right there with Rasmus Dahlin right now, but there has, has there ever 
been any fanfare about Rasmus Anderson, really, nope. outside of the building in Calgary and the marketplace that is. I just, this is where you hit the home runs. Guys that just work their way into your top four and become absolute studs for your group. And I think that really is what we were trying to punctuate the first game for Owen Power with. The balance that we saw, the hope for the future, that there's a bunch of guys in a similar age group that you can count on. So good on Calgary. They have really found themselves a nice group this year. And obviously the next test is playoffs. Yeah, and that goes back to what Jerry Fortin said, is that, yeah, it's great to draft first overall and top 10 picks, but how do you find value in players late in the first round, 15th overall, second round, third round, that are going to come in and play a significant role on your team? And that yeah. is the goal and uh, the probably the toughest part of being a scout, especially at the amateur level with those 16 and 17 year olds and some 18 year olds that you're watching around the world. Absolutely. Our thanks to Jerry Fortin for guesting with us this week on Instigators Overtime Podcast presented by Seneca Resorts and Casinos. Marty, thank you. Thanks to our crew as well. We'll see you soon.